you're looking anywhere else for help, you're looking in the wrong place. Amen? Lift your eyes up to the Lord. That's where our help comes from. Thank you for that reminder. And uh, uh, we appreciate our worship team leading us in the worship of the Lord. Oh, we had a great Easter season, didn't we? I really enjoyed Good Friday and Easter and, and uh, or the, uh, uh, the two weeks that we were in, into that. And it's interesting, as I started studying the book of Revelation, back at where we're at, I could have continued right on because uh, what we're going to read about today has to do with death and resurrection. It's a pretty interesting stuff going on in, in uh, Revelation. Um, but today, th- we're going to find, see, there's this, there's this huge lie. That's going on. There's a a big lie that today we're going to expose. As we get into Revelation chapter 11, if you want to start turning, uh, there we'll be starting verse 7. There's a big lie. And I want to begin by saying this, and it might be a little bit controversial, but I'm going to say this. I don't believe there is any such thing as an atheist. I mean, as a true atheist, I don't believe that there is actually such a thing as a true atheist. And so before we jump all the way into Revelation, keep your finger there, because that's where we're going to camp. But we're gonna, I want to look at Romans chapter 1, and look at eight, verses 18 through 21. If you, ha- if you have it, that's great. If not, it's on the screens. But listen, listen to what Paul said about this. He said, for the wrath of God, which we've been talking a lot about in the book of Revelation, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So even so-called atheists, people who don't believe in God, it's very clear from this passage. No, God has made it very manifest, very known that he exists. They actually know that he exists. They might claim there's no God, but it's because of their, right, their, their unrighteousness that they suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. In other words, because they want to do unrighteous things, they have to pretend like God doesn't exist. Does that make sense? You see, that's why in Psalm 14, we read this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Where where does he say it? In his heart. Atheism isn't really a problem here. It's a problem right here, isn't it? And and, and so a fool has said in his heart. Why? Because they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. And there is no one who does Good. They don't want to do what is right. They don't want to sub- submit themselves to a God. And, and so they pretend like, like that, that there is no God. See, atheism has never really been uh, a problem of the intellect. It's always the result of a corrupt heart. Did you follow, follow me so far? Yeah. I think this is important because... Um, because if we understand the root problem of mankind, then I think that will help us understand the wrath of God, and it will also help give us some perspective on what we should be doing with the time that we have left on this, on this planet. Now keep in mind that Jesus had already told the apostles, he had told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and that he would convict the world, of the whole world, not only of their sin, but of the reality of judgment. Remember that in John 
uh, 16, he, he talks about how the Holy Spirit's going to come in, and the Holy Spirit's going to convict them of mankind. He's going to deal with that heart issue, and what's he going to do? He's going to convict them of sin and of righteousness of judgment. What does that mean? He's going to let them know that there's such a thing as sin. They're going to know that what they're doing is wrong. Even the world knows that they're doing wrong things. Then he's going to convince them of righteousness, the idea that there is a standard that goes beyond you, and guess what? There's judgment coming. And so think about that. Everyone, because we talk about witnessing to the world, and we get like, the world doesn't even believe us. Well, guess what? We're not the only ones preaching to them. The Holy Spirit's preaching to the world. Amen? And he's convicting them of, of their sin and righteousness and judgment. And so all we have to do is give the same message that the Holy Spirit's. We're just another testi uh, testimony uh, of that, and, and we're witnesses of the same thing. And so keeping that in mind, that the Holy Spirit is convicting them, then you'd understand why then the, all the more the world has to work to have this great self-deception, I call it, this great self-deception. They have to, con to, to deceive themselves. And here's what I believe the great self-deception is, and this is very popular, especially in our culture right now. We'll see in Revelation 11, this is, this is going to be big in the world too. But it's the argument of ignorance. Now, what, what I mean by that? I mean that when, one day when we stand before God and he is judging us by his standards and, we're, and we stand before God at the judgment, the argument of ignorance would say that I can justify the way I live my life because I can always stand before God and say, but I didn't really know you existed. Right? To be able to say, oh, but Lord, how was I supposed to follow your commandments? I didn't even know that you existed. Right? And, and I think... That that is the self-deception that so many people, when the Holy Spirit convicts them that there's judgment coming. The Holy Spirit, and, and as, as uh, Paul said in, Re in Romans 1, we know that there's a God. We know that we're doing wrong. And so how do we justify continuing to live the way that we do? Well, we can always, when we get to the judgment, say, well, Lord, I didn't know. And that's a self-deception, isn't it? And, and it's, it's, it's going to that point. And really, I think this is the whole reason. When we get there, to the thought of, I can always claim, but I didn't even know you existed. But here's the thing when you, when you think about it. I, I think this is the reason why people hate Christianity. I think this is the reason why people hate you and me. Why? In fact, last week, as we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, People targeted churches so that they could kill believers in Christ. Why? I mean, how many of you believe in the tooth fairy? How many of you actually go on anti-tooth fairy marches? None? But he's not real! Sorry if there's anyone in here who believed in the tooth fairy. I'm sorry. Not real, sorry. I won't ruin any other ones, okay? But, why, but why don't you have an anti-tooth fairy march? Because when you really believe that the tooth fairy doesn't exist, you don't care if someone else acts like they do, right? Or believes that they do. Why does the world care that you believe in Jesus Christ? Why does the world care that you believe in God? Because deep down in their hearts, they do too. But they're trying to deceive themselves, convince themselves that he doesn't exist. So they hate you. Does that make sense? That's why they hate us. That's why Jesus Christ said, when they persecute you, they're really persecuting me. And so that, that's, the, we Christians are a constant reminder that the self-deception is just that. It's a self-deception. 
And that's why the world hates us. In fact, it's interesting to me that, is, that some hate us so much that, that, that they try to bomb us. But even then, in the response, it's like people don't even want to use the word Christian. Right? The, the Easter worshipers, how many have heard that a couple times? And, and I just cringe at that. For one, I, it's, I, I'm a Resurrection Day worshiper, for one. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't worship Resurrection Day, but I, resurre- I, I worship Jesus Christ. Amen. I worship God. And I do that on Resurrection Day. I don't worship Easter. But all that being said, it just shows that there's an animosity towards Christianity that you don't see with some of the with all the other religions, the, the, the fake religions out there. Why? Because you and I are ruining blissful ignorance. We're, we're destroying that for them. And so that's why I think the world hates us. What would we do with that? Not, what does this have to do with Revelation 11? I think it has everything to do with Revelation 11. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. Just to give a recap for those who might be joining with us right now, uh, uh, we're talking about the wrath of God and how he has this scroll with seven seals on it, and with every seal that is broken, it's revealed a little bit more about what, these, uh, what the, the wrath of God was going to be like in the end times, in the future, how it's going to unroll. And we talked through the first six, and the seventh one we found that the seventh seal was that there's going to be seven more problems, and they're called the seven trumpets. And so we have been walking through those. We, we got, went through the first four, and then, then when we get to five, six, and seven, we find that these are also called the three woes. They're called the three woes. So that means trumpet seven would be woe number one. Are you following with me? I know it's a little complicated, but trumpet five, I mean, would be woe one. So trumpet six, woe two, trumpet seven, woe three. You all with me? Yes. All right. So that's what's going on. And, and so then in the last few weeks before Easter, we looked at woe number five, uh, or, 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 or I'm sorry, woe number one, which was trumpet five. And there was an opening of the abyss. Right, this bottomless pit, it's a, it's a location where demons who have, were, were too evil to be allowed to, to roam the earth are allowed to roam free on the earth. And they've been there since, uh, since before the days of Noah. And so uh, we've, we've, got, we've got that as number five. Then on the sixth trumpet, which would be the second woe, uh, we have four principal demons coming out of there. And you remember the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, and... And so that's what was going on there. And in the midst of this, we read about these two witnesses. These two witnesses, likely Moses and Elijah. But two Old Testament prophets come and they go to the temple and they start speaking the truth. And what are they doing? They're ruining the blissful ignorance of the world. And they start preaching, God's real? You've offended him and judgment is coming. What are they doing? They're preaching the exact same message that the Holy Spirit's been telling them all along. And they hate them for it. So what do they do? They try to kill them. So, I mean, they try everything in their power to kill them. What do they do? They call down fire from heaven, just like they did in the Old Testament times. And boom, their enemies get consumed. And all this is done in a way that the entire world can see it and watch it. But when this was written, people thought, how can that happen? Now we have television and we realize, and social media, it's going to happen. And so we look at that and say, wow, these two witnesses are going to share this. And that's where we left off last week with mankind, or two weeks ago. Mankind still did not repent after all of this. Look at verse 7 of Revelation chapter 11. Let's read that together. When they finish their testimony, talking about the two witnesses, when, when, they've done, when they're done with their work, 
The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So the world's scared at this point. The world is scared. I mean, these two witnesses are prophesying and preaching the exact opposite of the great deception of, of their self-deception, they can, and they can't kill them. Like, how are we supposed to convince the world that there's no God when, when something is protecting these two men? Imagine, the whole world versus two, and the world's losing. And then this demon comes up, this beast of some kind comes out of the bottomless pit, and remember, all the other animals, are, you know, these demon-type things that came out of the bottom of this pit, they went around and started killing everybody. They killed a, a third of what was the remainder of the, of the planet. And so here you've got two enemies to the world. You've got those who are killing them, and then you've got, uh, you've got two witnesses who are telling the truth. Which one do you think they're going to hate more? They hate the two witnesses. It's like, oh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend even if they're killing me. And so this, this beast comes out, wages war against the two. And, and only when God is done with them, when God allowed them to finish their whole testimony, then God allows for the beast to win. And they're, they're killed. The two witnesses are dead. How do you think that made them feel? Well, we, see, we read about it. Look at verse 8 and 9. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually, or which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. This is a public display of indignity, isn't it? This is a celebration that's going on here, by the way. I mean, they're, they're excited. Like, finally, these two witnesses. And I've got these demons to deal with. But hey, who cares? At least we got rid of these two witnesses. They're dead. And, and the world will be in such a, such a place that, that they're going to parade their dead bodies. And they're going to hang their dead bodies and be there for the entire world to see. And so no one's there to pick them up. No one's there to clean them and, 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 and put them away like we typically do when someone dies, right? And by the way, all of this is a fulfillment of a prophetic psalm. In Psalm, uh, chapter, or psalm 79, we have a, what we call a prophetic psalm. That means a psalm that's written by a prophet. So not only is it written to music, but it's also a prophecy. This is what we read in, uh, in Psalm 79. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens. The flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, O oh Lord, Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. And here we see it happening, right? We see it happening. I think it's, fine. it's interesting, too, when we look back at verse 8, and where did all of this take place? It's, it's interesting to me. We know it's Jerusalem because we were already told that they were at the temple prophesying, right? So where's the temple? It's Jerusalem. Geographically, there's no question. But we have some descriptions of 
of Jerusalem that I find very interesting. He says, spiritually, what's it called? Sodom and Egypt. And when you think about that, Sodom and Egypt, what does that mean? Well, we go back to Sodom. Sodom was known for one character trait and one character trait only. And what was that? It was known for sexual perversions, right? Sexual perversions. And, and but what I mean by that is anything that would fit outside the, the idea of what God has designed for sex. So what God's design in a nutshell is, is I keep tripping over this. Um, what God's design in a nutshell is for one man and one woman to, to join together, form a marriage with that bond of, of exclusivity and intimacy, then they, they would engage in sexual activity and enjoy each other. The product of that can become children, and that's also part of his plan for procreation as well. Make sense? Yeah. Anything outside of that is a sexual perversion. Right? So the, if, if you can believe it, then the, we're going to see that, that the world is going to become more and more accepting of sexual perversions. Is that hard to swallow these days, that, that, that the world might actually believe that? Yeah. No, we prayed it. We prayed those kinds of things. Sexual perversions. Egypt was also known for one main thing. Egypt was known for their oppression of God's people. They, would ens- they enslaved the Jews. They enslaved the children of Israel. So, so we have Sodom and their sexual perversion. We have, um, um, we have Egypt who oppresses God's people. And God's going to say, the great city of Jerusalem is going to be overcome by sexual perversion and they're going to actually become the oppressors of God's people. That's a, that's, a, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Jerusalem. I mean, th- th- that great city. I think what's also interesting is both of those places in Scripture had one thing in common, one more thing in common. You know what it was? Both of them were quick to become objects of God's wrath. Right? They quickly became objects. What happened to Sodom? Remember? Yeah, God destroyed Sodom. <laughs> And the one person in the family who, who was sad about it and turned back and looked like, oh, I, I kind of miss Sodom, turned into a pillar of salt. Right? Egypt. What happened to Egypt? The plagues. Right? And so, so God, in his, in his righteousness and his holiness, uh, he punished them both severely. Now he's looking at Jerusalem and he says, you spiritually, you're Sodom and you're Egypt. Those are not compliments. And those imply real judgments coming. Right? And, uh, and so that's, that's what we find. It's also described in that same verse as where also our Lord was crucified. So even going back, when it's, you know, going back to a literal dis- description of where it was ge- geographically, the focus is on Israel's greatest offense. What was the greatest offense? They killed the Son of God. Now imagine if, if I had a business and I had, let's say I had uh, branches in all over the country and I, and, uh, and I found that one branch was doing everything wrong and they weren't just ma- not making money, but let's say they were, they were losing me a lot of money or whatever, just for sake of, of, of illustration for a moment. And there's this one branch. So I, so I send some representatives of the business from the headquarters to them to say, hey, we're going to clean things up. We're going to change the way we do things. And, uh, and then they come back and they're beat up. How would I feel as a boss? How would you feel if you were the boss? And they come back beat up and, 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 and like, oh, they, don't, they won't listen to us. They, they, don't, they're not, they don't fear you. They don't fear your authority. They're, they said they're going to continue to do things the way they want to do things. 
So I said, okay, that's, that's it. I'm sending my son to them. I send my son to them, and they kill him. Would I have a right to be angry? And yet we wonder, why is God wrathful towards us? We've, we've killed our prophets. We've kill, we killed his own son. Jerusalem, that great city that bears the name of Yahweh. It is the city of the temple, the dwelling place on earth for God. It will become a center of sexual perversion and oppression. But just like Sodom and just like Egypt, judgment is going to come in the form of destructive plagues. Make sense? And that's the reality of it. Look at verse 10. So we look at, at this. Those and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Remembering the context, the rejoicing over the dead bodies of the witnesses. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Again, this is, in fact, two more of the times that we find in the book of Revelation. The one term, it's, a, it's one word in, in the Greek, but it's earth dweller. Right? And that becomes a negative term, a derogatory term, like those earth dwellers, because they were so evil at this point. And so two times here, we have it. Those who dwell on the earth, it's, it's translated here. Those who dwell on the earth, those earth dwellers are, are negative. What are they doing in this, in this case? They're celebrating. They're making merry. They're exchanging gifts. You know what this sounds like to me? Christmas. Right? Doesn't it? Isn't that what you do? It's like at Christmas time, we celebrate, we're, we're trying to be merry, we spend time with family, we exchange gifts. They're going to replace Christmas with the day that they killed the two witnesses. Why? Because they were tormenting them. Now, how were they tormenting them? By telling them the truth. Telling them what the Holy Spirit's been whispering in their hearts all their lives long. But there's a God. You offended him. And judgment's coming. And that's torment to the world. They'll celebrate this. Finally, these men are dead. So instead of celebrating the birth of the king, what are they going to do? They're going to celebrate the death of the witnesses who prophesied about the king. Why? Because Christ was going to reign over them in righteousness. And they love their, their wickedness. In John 3, we read, we read this. And this is the condemnation. By the way, this is the same author as, uh, as the book of Revelation. But in John 3, he said this. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. Think about that for a moment. They loved darkness rather than light. So why do they hate the witnesses? They're shedding light on their evil sins. Sexual perversions, oppression. They're going to call it out for what it is. And remind them that there's a God, that he's real, he's been offended, and he's coming with judgment. Verse 20, forever, for because their deeds, or excuse me, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they may have been done. In God. They hate Christ. 
Why? Because he exposes their darkness. Think about the Passion Week. Remember when we talked about the Passion Week a couple weeks ago? They started with celebration, you know, because this, Jesus was coming. And then do you remember what happened in chapters 22, 23, 24? Jesus comes in, and he starts telling them, no, you're in sin. Oh, you can't do this. He goes to the temple. Your, your temple practice is wrong. You're all about money and greed. And he exposes their sin. He's a light. And then he goes to the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he goes, one by one, he goes, the, the political leaders start exposing their sin. And they loved it so much, they threw this great, they had this great revival at the end of the week, right? No, instead, they crucified him. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because light exposes their sinfulness. They don't want their sinfulness exposed. They want to keep doing their sins. And, and that's what we find going, not just in the week of, of the Passion, but that's what has been going on the entire time. But I also think there's another parallel because when, when you think of the week of Passion um, at, at, the, at the crucifixion, does the story end with crucifixion? No. It doesn't end with crucifixion. Jesus is dead and they're celebrating. They're happy about that, right? However, Sunday came just a couple days later. Now let's go back to Revelation 11. Verse 11. Now, after three and a half days, that's one day for every year they were prophesying. Three and a half days, the breath of God, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood to their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw. Wow. See how we could preach this on Resurrection Sunday? The breath breath of life from God comes into these two dead bodies and and imagine, this this is televised, the whole world's watching this. They're celebrating, and then, oh, what did you get for uh, the, the, the two witnesses' death day, or whatever they want to call it, right? Oh, I, I got this from my mom, and I, they're talking about this, and then all of a sudden, hey, uh, turn your TVs on, or pull out your phones, why? And they turn it on, and all of a sudden, they're seeing these two guys that they've been celebrating for three and a half days are now alive. Is that a little freaky? Anyone else here feel like, ooh, that's a, that would scare me a little bit? I, yeah, that's, that's where, the, and it says a great fear uh, fell on those who saw them. It's interesting too, this breath of life word here, which is the breath of life from God, that term actually goes all the way back to Genesis 2 when God created us the first time. Remember, God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. You're a living being. Why? Because of the breath of life that God gave to you. And here, if God was able to give the breath of life to dirt, then he can certainly take a corpse and turn it into a living thing once again. That's nothing for God. And that's the hope of our resurrection. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick this thing right off of here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, now I'm just falling in the hole. And, uh, Thank you. So, <laughs> let's give Alan a hand, right? So, so, uh, so, yeah, the breath of life. God has the, that ability to raise life out of nothing. And he does it once again here when he raises up these, these two corpses and gives them life again. God brings life out of death. And you would think that, that people would be like, oh, this is exciting because now we have proof that there's life after death, right? This is going to be a positive thing. But instead, the onlookers are terrified. Why are they terrified? Because... Now, their whole worldview has just been eradicated. 
God has just smashed it. This whole self-deception, everything that gave them permission to involve themselves in all sorts of evil, now it's not, it, it, does, it doesn't work. Because that entire philosophy is predicated upon the idea that there's no afterlife. If there's an afterlife where I'm judged for what I do in this life, then, then I'm not free to do whatever I want to do in this life. Does that make sense? In fact, that's why Paul, when he was describing the world's, uh, th this worldview in, in 1 Corinthians 15, in his passage on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, catch that? If the dead do not rise, there's no, if there's no afterlife, then where does it lead to? Well, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. How do you get to that point? Well, you have to ignore the afterlife. And all of a sudden, proof, worldwide, probably televised proof that there's an afterlife. These men are back. Back from where? Back from the grave. And the world is terrified. They're just terrified. So God now raises the dead publicly. They have been denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ for, for 20 centuries, at least. And God blows their whole belief system out of the water. Amen? Amen. Then, to drive the last nail into the coffin of their entire belief system, look what happens next. Look at verse 12. We read this. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Wow. There's no arguing yet now. I mean, remember, the whole world's watching this publicly. These two men that they've been watching their bodies decay for three and a half days. And they watch them come back to life. And then they all hear this voice from heaven coming down, telling them to come up to heaven. And they do. By the way, in the same manner that Jesus did when he ascended into heaven. In the clouds. Nail in the coffin of that lie. Who could argue in that final day? Who could argue? But I didn't even know you existed, Lord. How was I supposed to know? You didn't reveal yourself. Right. I can imagine a person that, that saying that before God. But Lord, I, I just didn't know that you existed. And God just shakes his head. I'm not buying. I'm not buying. You got caught in your own self-deception. And then God adds an exclamation point. Verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. He sends an earthquake, 7,000 people in the city of Jerusalem die, and, uh, and then it says that the remainder were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, before we get all excited about this uh, revival that happens in the middle of the tribulation, there's a couple of, of legitimate interpretations of the idea of giving glory to God, the God of heaven. Number one, giving glory to the God of heaven could mean that they, they finally repented, and they, they got saved, and they gave glory to God, right? That would be an awesome thing, right? That would be one legitimate translation of, of, that, of that verse. 
Another one would be, since the, the, the typical way to talk about giving credit for something in, in Greek is to give glory to it. It could just mean that what they're saying here is they were so afraid, but at least they came to the point where they're saying, all right, we're attributing this to God. I mean, you could use that term just like uh, right now you have uh, uh, multiple groups as far as I know, but you have uh, ISIS is the primary group that is taking the credit for what happened uh, uh, last week on, on Resurrection Sunday, right? They're, they're the ones, they want to take credit for it. What are they doing? In Greek, what are they doing? They want you to give them the glory for it. Even if you don't agree with it, that's the terminology. Does that make sense? And so is it here that they're actually repenting or is it here that they're finally just at least coming to the point where they say, okay, this is God, he's real, and we're being judged by him. I believe that it's the second one, and here's why. Um, number one, from this point forward, there is no mention of a revival going on in, in the tribulation. You don't hear about any of, anything about this great group of people that have, have now, now the world's changed. No, what you read about? Judgment. You read about Judgment. The second reason why I believe that, that there, this was not a, a genuine repentance is because if you remember back in, in chapter 9, when it was talking about the, uh, the, the sixth trumpet, it said that even after that's it, the end of the sixth trumpet, the end of the second woe, it said that they still did not repent of their murders and their sorceries and their sexual immorality and their thefts. And it goes on to explain all the other sinful things they were doing. They did not repent. That was at the end of the second woe. Let's go one more verse in our passage in Revelation. It says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the end of the, of which woe? The second one. We've already been told that during the second woe, no one repents. So when you have these two options of they gave glory to God, could mean that they, got, they repented, one, or it could mean that they did not repent and just gave recognized God in this. Only one of those can be true, but because of what we know from Revelation 9, really only one of those can be, the only, the only one that can be true is the fact that this was not genuine repentance. Does that make sense? Anyone follow me? And so I, I, say, it, I say that because it's important to understand. I think that's even why God included that so we know and understand the timing of, of that exactly. And so all of this was a part of the second woe, and we know that no one repented. And since this is not repentance, then what's going on when they give glory to God for, for all of this wrath? Well, this is mere intellectual concession. They're conceding, saying, okay, there's a God, he's angry, and he's punishing us. But they never gave him their hearts. They never repented, and so they were never saved. How do we apply? How do we apply all of this? We look at this and think, how, how is this supposed to affect the way we, we, we think, uh, the way we feel, and what we do, right? Our, our head, our heart, and our hands. Start with the head. What, do we, what should we know? Know this. There we go. Know that salvation is not about intellectual concession. What do I mean by that? Um, know that salvation is not about intellectual concession. The world would already know at this point the truth. But that's not salvation. You know, a lot of people think that, that salvation is, is just knowing that Jesus died on the cross. You, that's just knowing the fact of that. James talks about that kind of belief and he says, even the demons know that. 
But they're not saved. He says, that's not faith. Faith isn't just knowing something's true. Faith is putting your belief in something. It's, it's, salvation is not about just intellectual concession. It's a total offering of yourself to God and saying, God, I'm with you. I believe, I believe in you. I believe what, you t- what you're telling me. And you said Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. says, I believe that. And I'm going to accept that. Do you see the difference? One's just a mere intellectual concession. Like, All right, Jesus died for me. Yeah, it's real. That's not enough. The demons know that. They're not saved. But it's a wholehearted. In fact, it's, a, it's the same in both Testaments. What? How does God describe the salvation in the Old Testament? Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's a total surrender. All right, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours. And so a lot of the, the, the fake Christianity that we see in the world today is too much like, you know, I'm, I'm doing so well because I'm going to invite Jesus to be a passenger in my car of life. And he'll be right there with me. All my bad turns, he'll be right there to comfort me. Right? No. It's recognizing that we're the hitchhiker. And God says, you're going the wrong way. But if you'll get in the car with me, I'll take you to a whole new place. And you say, forget the direction I was going. I reject the direction I was going. And I'm going to let you take me wherever you want to take me. See the difference? It's a completely different thing. We, should, we ought to know that. Our heart, say this, feel the fear of God now so that you can escape his wrath later. What I mean by that is to recognize what the whole world isn't going to recognize. That God is worthy to be feared. The Bible says the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. So if you don't fear the Lord, then there's no wisdom. That has to be the starting point. To recognize there's a God and we offended him, and there's judgment that's coming. Fear that now, so that you can escape his wrath now. So what do you do? You fear that now, so you look for a solution. What's the solution? It's very simple. God already provided it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What a beautiful verse, isn't it? Written by John, who also wrote Revelation. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wrote the whole book. So feel the fear of God now so that you can escape his wrath later. And, and I, I know, in fact, I was even talking with someone before church today and uh, who said, I, I, I don't know, I, I like you know, hearing more about Revelation because it's scary. I, I get it. It is scary, but you know what? We don't have to go through any of this. This is, this is to motivate us to do two things. One, to, to show appreciation to God for the grace and mercy that he's bestowed on us through Jesus Christ. And to, help us, and to help us get the message out there to others that they can accept Jesus Christ too. And they can escape all of that as well. The good news outweighs the bad, no matter how bad it might seem. So what do we do with this? What do we do? Two things. One is surrender. In other words, if you're not saved, what I mean by that, because that's just a lingo that we use for, for, uh, for uh, this total conversion. But what I mean by that, if you're not saved, if you've never come to that point in your life where you said, I'm done being the boss of my own life and I want God to be the Lord of my life now and I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins and I'm putting my trust in that instead of on myself to, for eternal life, then that's total surrender. So I would surrender. Give yourself completely 
to God. And if you'd like to do that today, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You can come forward. You can go to the back. We have someone who would share it when we sing our, our final song in just a few moments. If, if that's you and you're not sure that if you were to die today, that, that you would escape all of God's wrath and that you'd be accepted into his heaven, that he's prepared a place for us for eternity. If you're not 100% certain about that, don't leave here today without knowing. We have people in here who would love to share with you from God's word how you can know for sure where your eternal destiny is. Secondly, maybe for those who have already, and you say, Pastor, I know I've already surrendered everything, but, but I'd say, then speak up. Speak up. We live in a world of self-deceived people. But I want to encourage you today to understand, know and understand this. You are not the only voice speaking to them. The Holy Spirit is working with them right now. He's convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Just speak the same thing he's speaking. What do the witnesses do? Same thing. There's a God. You've offended them, judgment has come. You can do that nicely. Be kind, but the, the most unkind thing you can do is to know that those things are true and not say anything. And not say anything. I remember watching, in fact, I think I showed it here um, uh, when, when Penn from Penn and Teller was talking, and, he, and he's not a believer, he's an atheist. But as he, as he heard this one person who had the guts to give him the message, it put him in tears because he appreciated that, hey, I don't, he said, I don't believe what this man's preaching, but at least he loved me enough to tell me. He said, but it really angered him to think about all these Christians that he's met. If they actually believe I'm going to hell and they haven't told me this, how dare they? That is so unloving. Let's not be guilty of that. Speak up. Let's get out there and let's start witnessing. I don't know when the rapture's going to come. It wouldn't surprise me if it came in 2019. It wouldn't surprise me if it came in 100 years from now. But I want to make sure that in the time we have left, we're doing what we should be doing. Amen? Amen. Speak up. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond. And here's the two ways I want you to respond. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Come up and come talk to me or go straight to the back. We have men or, or, or women that could just share with you from God's word. If the way the Holy Spirit is working in your heart today is that you are, you are saying, I am willing to be a voice and I am willing to be like the two witnesses and I'm going to go out there and I am going to speak up and I'm going to talk to, to, to unbelievers. If that's a commitment that you're making to God, I'm just going to ask you to come forward. You can kneel anywhere along the front here and just pray that, and it's between you and God. And then we won't bother you as you're, we will not interrupt your conversation with God, okay? And you just have that conversation with him. But if the Holy Spirit's working in your heart in either of these ways, I would.